This morning we're going to be in John chapter 18. And the last time we looked at the Lord's intense prayer. And as we looked at that intense prayer, remember, he's going to the cross. Uh, There's a lot of things that are going on that evening. And what we did was we made eight points of parallel to our own lives. You know, Jesus was, of course, our standard, our greatest example. So we look at those eight points and we say, gee, in our lives, uh, how can we model what the Lord Jesus did? So if you weren't here two Sundays ago, uh, get the CD. It's definitely worthwhile. And today we're going to speak about really uh, smaller events that are happening in John 18. We're only covering 11 verses, Jesus' arrest. Now, I'm going to focus mainly uh, on verse 4, which is the title of our sermon, where the arresting party comes to Jesus and he says, Whom do you seek? And that can be translated into Greek. There's a small phrase with two Greek words. What are you looking for? What do you desire? What are you here for? And I would just ask you this morning, when you walked into this church, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the truth? Are you looking for something that your soul has been longing for for so long? And if you find it through the word of God, will you act on the truth? Will you respond to the truth? Now, not everybody likes the truth. You ever hear the expression, the truth hurts? Kind of reminds me of that story of the uh, the Texas courtroom where the prosecutor calls an elderly woman, Mrs. Jones, to the stand, and he's got to go through some formality, and he says to her, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she goes, why, surely I know you, Mr. Howard. I've watched you grow up, and quite frankly, you're a big disappointment to me. (laughs) You lie, you manipulate people, you gossip, and you think you're a big shot, but you're a two-bit paper pusher, and your law firm is the worst in the county. Prosecutor is stunned, and he says, he doesn't know what to do. So he points to the defense attorney and says, do you know the defense attorney? And she goes, sure, I know the defense attorney. I've watched him grow up, and he's a big disappointment too. He's lazy, he's bigoted, he's an alcoholic. He's cheated on his wife twice, and one of the women was your wife. <laughs> so the, the judge bangs his gavel and says, counselors, approach the bench. And they approach the bench, and he says in a, a soft tone, but very firm, if either of you two idiots asks her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. <laughs> The truth. Who likes the truth? We're going to look today at six subtle clues to the truth of Jesus' deity in these events, in this event that probably took less than an hour where he's going to be arrested. It's only going to cover 11 verses, so we're going to jump in. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons." So we spoke of the geography last Sunday, and here we're going to speak about the betrayal and the subsequent arrest of Christ. Now, I want to look at this a little bit in reverse, especially in verse 3. I'm going to do this for a reason. So the, the first thing, or the last thing we see, is this party comes out with lanterns, torches, and weapons. 
We also see that there's a group from the religious leaders, the officers, from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And three, it says Judas had a detachment of troops. Now that word in the Greek is spera, which has a Latin origin, I believe it's a transliteration, and what it means is a Roman cohort, which if it was a full cohort could have up to, now Romans left us, they were so hubris, they were so egotistical, they left us so much of their history. But basically, you could have had up to a thousand soldiers in that cohort. Now, we don't believe that there was a thousand that went to arrest Jesus, but there was a considerable amount. So here's my question. Why would the arresting party bring weapons and Roman soldiers to arrest a rabbi who had no propensity for violence and 11 non-military followers? It's not like these guys are special forces. I'll tell you why. Because they knew he was more than a man. We can learn a lot from unbelievers, can't we? They knew that Jesus was greater than a man. How many times did Jesus heal somebody and he said, you know, go your way, the Lord has shown you mercy, but don't tell anybody, my time has not yet come. And we find out they told the whole village. Right? Well, word gets around. Even Josephus, after the fact, Josephus Flavius, the Roman historian, had wrote in Antiquities of the Jews, there was a man called Jesus if it be lawful to call him a man, for he did great signs and wonders. This isn't biblical history. This is secular history. He, wasn't, he was obviously not a believer. He didn't call him Lord and Savior, but he said it was something about this guy. He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind. I don't even know if I should call him a man. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these clues that both the disciples, of course, but also Christ's detractors knew of his deity. So the first clue is that even his detractors knew of his divinity, but refused, of course, to acquiesce to his lordship. It's one thing to believe in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. They have dealings with him all the time. They're constantly getting frustrated by his work. But they're not saved and they're not going to heaven. Must call him Lord and Savior. So basically, these, these men who were going after Jesus knew, but they didn't want to know, as the expression goes. However, the arresting party was acting on faith. I've always said that behavior follows belief. You can say what you want about what you believe, but if you truly believe in something, your behavior is going to follow it. It's going to be a one-for-one application. These men believed that Jesus was deity, that he was divine. You know what's really sad today in Christianity? You can hear from some pulpits and some ministries that Jesus was just a man. And they call themselves Christians. That Jesus didn't do miracles. That they don't believe in the virgin birth. But well, I'll tell you what, the guys who arrested him believed in all that stuff. They brought swords and torches and this guy gets squirrely, we've got to go after him quick because he might do some miracle and turn us into mice or something. We can learn a lot from unbelievers, can't we? Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. He actually said, I am, and I'm going to cover that. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Then when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is a very unusual portion of Scripture, only indigenous to John's Gospel. You won't find it in the synoptic Gospels of this. How many of you have never read this part about the arresting party drawing back and falling to the ground? Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. Okay, so quite a few. 
quite a few. Now, I'll tell you this. In my career as a police officer, I've never been top cop, but I'll tell you, if I ever go into arrest somebody and they spoke to me and I fell down on the ground, I'd think twice about slapping the cuffs on them. <laughs> I'd say, headquarters, I don't know what happened, but the suspect got away. I'm clear. <laughs> What's the significance of this? I believe it was an act of mercy to the, the arresting party, and I'm going to get to that, why I think that. See, Jesus uses the holy name of God. Remember in Exodus 3 when there was the burning bush and God appeared to Moses and he spoke to him and he said, who are you, Lord? You, you want me to do these things. You want me to go to my people, but who do I say sent me? Do you have a name? Do you have a title? And all God said was yod Hey vav Hey in the Hebrew, which is not even a title. It's a, it basically says I'm the eternally existent one. I've always been and I will always be. Now, in the Greek, you can translate that to ego, a me. A me is the verb that's conjugated to the first person singular, but ego gives it emphasis. It's not necessary. So Jesus said to them, I am. Now, any Jew who was there would immediately understand that he was equating himself with God when, they, when he asked who you're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Today, even Orthodox Jews will not say, yod heh vav they will not say um, Elohim, they, will, no, they won't say God, they won't say what God presented himself as, they will say Hashem, bless you. No, Hashem means, <laughs> let's see if you're awake. <laughs> Hashem literally means the name. When they write, they will not write the name of God for fear of taking the Lord's name in vain. So they completely distance themselves in their conversations and their writings from God's name. If you know any Orthodox Jews, that's what they do. I know a few. So Jesus not only says the name of God, but equates himself with God. Make no mistake, the name of God is powerful. So is the voice of God. By his words, he spoke creation into existence in the book of Genesis out of bara, out of nothing. He brought everything into existence from nothing. I think that Jesus gave them a little taste of his deity. Why? To think about it. To reflect on it when they went home. At some point to repent and be saved. Yes, even Jesus' enemies. I'll tell you what, the Lord tells us to love our enemies. He tells us to pray for our enemies. How difficult can that be at times? I mean, let's be real here this morning. Not easy to do. Well, let me just help you out with this, just to give you a little encouragement, is that if we have enemies and they're bent on destroying us and we pray for them and they become submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then they're not our enemies anymore. They're our friends and they're our supporters. There's a little benefit that comes with that, but I think that when we're asked to pray for our enemies, it goes deeper than that. So the second clue that we read is his deity. Jesus says, I am. Now, when the Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door, they will be clear to you that they don't believe that Jesus is God. Next time they come and they, they hang out at your house, just ask them, do me a favor, I'd like to get the whole series of your leaders, John's teaching, the Gospel of John from the first chapter to the last. They've been around for 200 years. They don't have it. It doesn't exist. Why? Because they can't get through the book of John. Because John's Gospel is all about revealing Jesus' deity. So they have, they have trouble there. They'll look at you like you have, you have two heads. 
Here's another issue is the translation. So, Pastor Joe, so you, you think that you are just going to now retranslate the Bible and where the, the translator says, I am he, you're going to say it means I am? Well, in the Greek, there is no he. If you have a Bible and you see an, I, wherever it's italicized, that's where the translators put extra words to make it grammatically make sense. So here's the quandary, the dilemma of the translators over the years. To make it make sense grammatically, but also maintain the originality of what's trying to be said there. And that was a difficult job for them over the years. Because here's the problem. Jesus, you can't confine him. He couldn't even be confined to a human body. It didn't last long. You can't confine him to grammar. He says things about the future, and he speaks about him in the present tense. You know, so if you're a translator, you scratch your head and go, boy, this is tough. The same thing with chronology. Jesus takes chronology and, you know, the past, the present, the future, and, and the translators are trying to, to put this and make it, sen- make it make sense. But we're speaking about God here, and you can't confine him to black and white letters on a page of a book. So I just want to add a little, maybe, um, apologetics there for you. So when Jesus, or when God announces who he is, how do we respond? How do you respond this morning? Do you investigate? If you came in here not knowing God and you're presented with this right in your face, up front and center in God's word, you have two things you can do. You can't ignore it. You've got to investigate it. It's either true or it's nonsense. But you have to make that decision. You've got to investigate it. You've got to look into it. You can't come face to face with the living God and just say, well, I don't have time for it right now. You know, I've got tests. I've got, I'm preparing for my retirement. Seriously, whatever it is this morning that you're thinking about, we're speaking about God trying to get a hold of you through his word. So that's the second point is he says he's God. The third clue is the power from Christ's self-existent confession of his deed, he knocks them over. Now there's a debate. Bible scholars are divided. It's not a big division. Some think the fact that he said, I am, caused the people to fall over by themselves. Well, I don't agree with that because he says it twice and they don't fall over a second time. I believe that he gives them a little taste of his deity for their own good, for their own mercy. Remember that. It's a subtle clue. He didn't open up the sky. He didn't swallow them in the Red Sea. He just had them get knocked over. Just get their attention a little bit. See, many look for the grandiose when it comes to God. I think sometimes in the American church, we're guilty of that. Always run into some big crusade or big event or big great guest speaker. A lot of times God is not in the grandiose. He's in the subtleties. He's in that still small voice. Where do we get carried away in Western culture that we want to be like the world now? Big, big, big is better. Not necessarily. God's not overpowering. He's a gentleman. That's his character. And he often reveals himself to us reveals himself to us very gently because he's a loving God. He's not going to break down the door. The last word on the arresting party falling over. Now, I have a technique that I guarantee that when I'm done with it in like 30 seconds, you'll never forget the fact that these guys fell over. How many of you, raise your hands, have ever heard of myotonic fainting goats? Myotonic fainting goats. Really, a lot of you, this whole section hasn't heard of them. This section has. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's a condition in a ter- certain type of goat. It's actually a defect. where the, When they hear something loud and startling and panic, they're myotonic. Their muscles uh, stiffen up and they go, eh, 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 and they kind of fall over. 
Now, it's, I, I won't do this. Some people, they'll go up to the fence and they'll yell at the goats and the goats will all stiffen up and fall over at the same time. I think it's cruel, but, you know, zoologists say it really doesn't hurt them. And they fall over in unison. So to me, I, can't, I can only picture Jesus saying, I am, and they all go, ah, 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 and they fall over, you know. <laughs> so what'd you learn about in church today? Oh, myotonic fainting goats. Yeah, he has a very unorthodox teaching style. Look it up on the internet when you get home, but I guarantee you'll never forget that passage of Scripture. Verse 7. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he, or that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost one. none. Excuse me. This time the Lord says who he is, but it's without the force of deity. Now, according to Matthew 26, at some point, Judas Iscariot kisses the Lord and betrays him. And this is what Satan does. You can look at Judas, um, and he, he gave up the Lord for the world, for 30 lousy pieces of silver. Maybe be, and there's so many theories of why Judas did what he did, but certainly he gave him, himself over to the evil one. Different from our culture, men in that culture, and still do today, it's a, a kiss, like a kiss on a cheek, an embrace and a kiss. American men, we're a little standoffish, you know, we, we don't get so close, you know, it's just a thing in our culture. I think we're a very divided society in general, I think technology is making it worse. That being said, this was a symbol of love. Your brother, your father, your best friend, you would hug, you would embrace and you would, you would kiss. So Judas takes that symbol of love and he perverts it. He destroys it. And this is what the enemy does. And this is what the enemy does in our culture. Kissing, dating, even sexuality. Inside of marriage, it's great. However, it's dangerous outside of marriage. And this is where society's going. You can't drive down the turnpike and there's billboards. You just can't get away from it. It's everywhere. Sexuality. So it could be a, an advertisement about electric, and there's a, somebody, men and women, dressed you know, promiscuously to get your attention. But that's what Satan does, and that's what he's doing in this culture. He's perverting it, and all it does is cause pain and sorrow. Right? I would say, too, that there are some that give up benefits of being in the fellowship, being with the Lord, you know, following what he has to, to say and to continue that. But they have a penchant for destruction and division. So, you know, my pastor actually told me, he goes, every solid ministry will have their Judases. I actually have a, a very small side ministry where I try to minister to other pastors and churches that have, been, that have had these church splits and things that have happened to them. We've experienced it at Calvary Chapel Crossfields. And you just get somebody who works their way in there and their whole design is to d divide instead of to build up. As the body of Christ, we should be building each other up. We should be cohesive as a body, not divided. I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but Judas Iscariot is a very interesting person. The whole study could be devoted to his ways and what he did. In verse 10, it says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Well, I've got to tell you this. If Peter was a fisherman, and if he was aiming for the heart or the neck, boy, he was a pretty terrible marksman. He got the ear. <laughs> On a serious note, why did Peter do this? Well, it really goes back to Jesus asking James, John, and, and Peter to come with me and pray with me. And they fell asleep on him three times. They were not spiritually prepared. We, we are instructed as believers on how to follow the word, how to hide it in our hearts, how to pray, how to get close and commune with God so we can be strengthened for a time such as this. Just like Peter, we blow it. And sometimes we blow it more than once. But shame on us if we don't learn from those mistakes and we don't get closer to the Lord and be built up so when the tragedies and the storms do come, that we're prepared for them. I have to tell you that in American culture, and I hate to say it, it's getting into the church too. Show me any, any pagan culture, churches inside of it, stuff, some of that stuff gets in the church and we're supposed to be affecting them. It's supposed to be the reverse. But we live in an age where people don't want to take personal responsibility. Look at our elected leaders. They make big money. They get a lot of benefits, and none of them can take responsibility for what's going on in this country. But that shouldn't be us. I call it the victim-villain mentality. When something goes wrong in our lives, we're always the victim. So what do we do? We have to find the villain. And if somebody tells you the truth, someone lovingly, or you hear it in your word, don't get angry at the pastor or the Bible or I don't like part. And this is what, what's happening in some of the... Um, some of the movements with the youth. They're picking and choosing things they want out of the scriptures so they can keep attracting the youth. I think that's an insult to our youth. Tell the youth the truth. Let them go up, grow up in a strong way and, and they're going to be the next leaders. But, listen, we've got to find a villain because I'm the victim. You know what? Peter took responsibility, as we'll see. He repented and he changed. And that's where we need to be. It actually takes a lot of self-control to tame your flesh. If somebody gets you angry and you start to lose it and you start to rage and you start to swing and kick, people say, well, you know, that's, you know there's a fight and, and they YouTube all these things. But the truth is, when somebody actually chills and they, they decide not to fight and not to swing, that shows more self-control. That shows more bravery. Because when that adrenaline is going, it actually feels good to just release it. So Peter was not spiritually prepared. And he was going to prove to the Lord, even though the Lord told him he was going to deny him, he was going to prove to the Lord that he was wrong. And he started swinging that sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. Look, Lord, see? Well, we're not done yet. <laughs> we're not done, Peter. But I'm sure we've all been there. What was Jesus' response? Well, in Mark 14... He adds that Jesus said, permit even this, and he healed Malchus's ear. He touched it and he healed it. What I find amazing is Malchus allowed Jesus to touch him after his buddy just whacked off his ear. Again, the arresting party knew about Jesus. And if they wouldn't admit it because they needed job security, or listen, I'm just doing my job, I'm earning a living. In their hearts, they knew that what they were doing was wrong. What did Jesus also do? He prevented Peter from being arrested. As we would say in law enforcement, Jesus destroyed the evidence. Now, I don't know if the ear was completely off or it was hanging off, but I have no doubt when Jesus touched it, 
it just was seamless. Not a scar, not a scab, no more blood. It was completely reattached. Jesus was always a shepherd. It wasn't time for Peter to get arrested. Even in facing death, the Lord was always thinking about others. Fixing Peter's screw-ups and fixing our screw-ups. What is it that you walked into this church with this morning that you've made a mess of? Well, pastor, you don't know my story. My family doesn't talk to me. I'm a black sheep at work. You can go on and on and on. However, Jesus can fix your screw-ups. Peter was going to completely sabotage the whole cross thing in, in a fit of rage, and Jesus fixed it. You don't think that there's something in your life that you're dealing with that Jesus can't fix? I'm telling you, and I'm here to tell you that he can, no matter what it is, because that's what he does. He's a merciful God. And even when I've blundered and messed up, I kind of look back and say, that could have been worse. Thank you, Lord. You know, I mean, I, I, I reaped what I sowed, but at the same time, the Lord fixed it for me. Fourth clue, healing of Malchus's ear. Again, subtle. He didn't do heart surgery on Malchus. He just fixed his ear. My question is, when you see a miracle, how do you respond to that miracle? And if it's subtle and small, are you satisfied with those subtleties? Are you listening? Are you paying attention to the subtleties in your life and what God's trying to do? Last word on the ear bit. I'm a, a, a science buff, and I, <laughs> they actually have a procedure now where they can regrow tissue. And check this out. You ever see, you ever hear of those 3D printers? You can take any object and it scans it three-dimensionally and you put it, it's like a box and they use plastic and they can pretty much replicate anything. And now they're concerned because firearms and magazines can be replicated. But what they do now in the biotechnic field is they take living collagen and cartilage, human tissue, and they put it in the 3D machine. And I, I saw this, you can, you can see this online, and they, they took a computer image of a man's ear and then they loaded into the computer and started building his ear, 3D. It's pretty wild. And they, they, put it, they could put it on the arm, and it actually grows this living tissue. It becomes a regular living ear. Now, it took us thousands of years to get here. It took Jesus about a second to do it. <laughs> so let's put it all into perspective. In Matthew 26, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword away. I like to use the Synoptic Gospels with John's Gospel and just put it all together chronologically. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, Put your sword away. Do you realize that I can pray to Father and call down 12 legions of angels? Now, if you understand that in the Old Testament, one angel slayed 185,000 of the enemy army, imagine what 12 legions could do. Forget about it. They'd wipe out the whole planet um, without even breaking a sweat. And I'm sure Jesus said it so that everybody could hear. I'm, just listen, this is probably up close and personal. They're all gathered around, they're thronging. Somebody's deciding, well, let's grab Jesus. Let's do this. Why do we keep talking about this? And this is the, the, and I like to always put myself in the situation. Remember there was a situation before where the, the, the religious leaders told the temple guards, go arrest him. And then they go to arrest Jesus and they hear his teachings and they come back, no Jesus. Where's Jesus? Well, nobody ever spoke like this man. So I have no, no doubt that the same thing is going on right now. Nobody really wants to lay hands on him and take him because he's ministering to their soul. There's this big quandary that these guys are going through, I believe. 
So the fifth clue, if Jesus wanted to, he could easily call for backup, big time. He had plenty of firepower, but decided not to use it. Why didn't he use it? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I do have to say this, because even within Calvary, some Calvary pastors are getting a little soft. I listened to this awesome pastor named Billy Rutledge from North Carolina. There's a small church. He's a Calvary pastor, and he really gave it. Actually, he gave it at the West Coast Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference about the softness. You can believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus. He's the Son of God. I've heard of him. But you're not saved until you consider him your Lord and Savior. Make no mistake. Too many believers that call themselves Christians want a little bit of Jesus, they want to get to heaven, and they want a whole lot of the world. Man, it doesn't mix. When you believe on Jesus, you have to acquiesce to his lordship. He's got to be the master of your life. So let's make that clear. And then you won't perish. Listen, you come to the cross, you've got problems, that's great. The Lord will work with you. But you need to acquiesce to his lordship. In John 3.17, it says, For Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that through him, Jesus, the world might be saved. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. This is why he held back all his firepower, because he had to go to the cross so that me and you, we could be saved. There could be an opportunity for us. Otherwise, there'd be no hope for us. Jesus chides Peter in verse 11. He says, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And this is the sixth fulfillment of Scripture. Actually, that he fulfilled scripture. Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross. Isaiah 53, the psalm of the suffering servant. All the imagery in, in, in the book of Genesis that Pastor Mike's been covering on Wednesday night. You know, Abraham and Isaac in the three days and, and the sacrifice. You know, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. So, again, in earshot, who could, who could fulfill scripture? Jesus did. Even in his death, he fulfilled it. These are not the actions of a person unsure of the after effects of their death. This is not the action of someone thinking that death could hold them. Jesus had a plan. He had an agenda. He knew he was going to rise again. He knew what he was going to do when uh, his body had died and it was in the cave. He had a plan. It shows that Jesus, not the arresting party, was in total control of the situation. The way he handled Judas... He didn't get angry at Judas. He didn't smack him and say, hey, now you've got a reason to arrest me. He completely kept his cool. He loved Judas. Probably was desiring in his heart that Judas would repent. Peter, he kept Peter from, uh, you know, he, Peter did his best impression of Zorro with the, with the sword there. You know, our poor Lord. I mean, if there was anyone who could, should have looked at themselves and had self-pity, it would have been him. And he spent his last hours trying to, calm everybody down and take control of the situation. The arresting party, he went willingly. He didn't give an opportunity to besmirch the name of God and the purpose of God. Six clues to Christ's deity. Subtle, not earth-shattering, not sky-opening. But he does the same thing when he deals with us. He's subtle. I'll tell you that probably at least, I don't know, maybe one hand, both hands, amount of times that I grew up, as a late teen and in my college years, that the Lord subtly presented himself to me. And I was drawn to the party scene. It was a strong draw. I was drawn to alcohol. It was a strong draw. And I kept pushing away the Lord. But 
there was a point in time where it just clicked because between those periods that solid men of God who didn't know me, who didn't know me anything, spent the time to pour into me, I never forgot them. I never forgot these men. And every time I said, well, let me just do it my way first, I made a mess of my life. It didn't work. Well, it's funny, the, the last time or the time that I actually said, you know what, I'm, I'm not running from them anymore. That was, it's, people say, oh, well, you Christians always only come to God when they're, they're messed up. It's churches filled with messed up people. When I was messed up, this is the idiocy of my thinking, I didn't come to him. But when I actually started to get my life in order and, and make money and buy a house and all that, I still was empty. Those things didn't fill me. And it was time. It was time. But God didn't break down the door. He was very subtle and gentle with me. I had to listen to him. I had to stop what I was doing. Now, on the part of the receivers in this, in this account, they had their plans. Their plans, unfortunately, were evil. We have our plans, and most of them are probably not evil. We go to work, we go to school, we get married, we have children, we plan our retirement, and the Lord will subtly reveal himself to us. He wants a relationship with us, but he's not going to break the door down. There will be a time where he comes back in power and glory in his second coming, and by that time, there will be no opportunity to repent. Those who have rebelled against God will face judgment. If we look at the representation, the Roman soldiers in the passage, think about it. They're Roman soldiers. They're pagans. These guys were representative of the clueless world, ignorant to the true sovereign God. We can see that today. We know people like that all the time. The religious leaders were representative of self-righteous spirituality, religious roteness, do this, do that, but really no relationship with God. Judas represented those that had privilege of seeing the truth and experiencing the truth and choosing the world instead. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't, you fall into one of those three categories. It might be insulting, but in that group is representative of the world outside of Christ's church. In closing, let me ask you the same question that Jesus asked. Whom do you seek? What are you looking for this morning? What do you want? If you found the truth in God's word, which God's trying to reveal himself, are you ready to respond to it? Because nobody wants to live a lie. I was tired living a lie. I knew the truth, and I knew my life was a lie. I didn't like what I saw in the mirror. Are you fully prepared to take your arms and your feet and your will where your heart and your mind and your spirit have already understood this morning? Are you willing to stop compartmentalizing God and let him have first place in your life? Consider what you've heard today and seriously consider responding to the truth because your eternity depends on it. God is not overpowering. God is a gentleman. But you must respond to his love advances on your life. We don't come to church just to fellowship and to be one of those clubs out there. We come to meet the living God and understand his word and his truths for our lives, his purpose for our lives. That's why there's so many unfulfilled people walking around. That's why the guys who write books with the word purpose and destiny and all that stuff, they're making a fortune because they figured out how to tap into people's souls. But unfortunately, a lot of it is done for money. This is the free gift that God offers, his son. 
He is a gentleman. He does love you. He wants your attention. Nonetheless, you need to respond to his call in your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we could live a life of peace, of contentment, of joy, of fulfillment, autonomous of what we look like on the outside, what we do for a living, how much money we make. Those are all things of the world.